We'll hear argument next in House versus Bell. Mr. Kissinger. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The jurors which can raise the level of the podium a little so we can hear you. Is that better, Your Honor? One more sound check. Does that? Thank you. The jurors who convicted Mr. House of first-degree murder heard that semen stains on the victim's clothing matched Mr. House. They didn't hear the DNA evidence, which showed that not to be the case. The jurors heard that because there was no such analysis at the time? That's correct, Justice O'Connor. How many years ago was this trial? The trial, Your Honor, was approximately 20 years ago. The jurors who convicted Mr. House heard that blood stains on Mr. House's blue jeans matched the blood belonging to the victim. They didn't hear the assistant chief medical examiner for the state of Tennessee testify that the source of those blood stains was a sample taken during Ms. Muncie's autopsy, nor did they hear The district court heard that, though, didn't it? That's correct, Justice Scalia. And didn't believe it, right? And did not believe it. Found, as a matter of fact, that the blood was not a result of the spill. Justice Scalia, the court made a conclusion that the blood which had spilled from the tube had spilled after the blood had been tested. It did not, however, make a factual finding. It made a conclusion of law regarding that, Your Honor. Is that a conclusion of law? It is, Your Honor. If the court were to look at the district court order, the district court order was divided into two distinct parts. The first part I don't care what part it put it in. The district court did not believe that the blood on the trousers was a consequence of the spill, and that, therefore, blood was identified on the inside of his trousers that was the blood of the victim. That's what the district court believed, having heard the testimony. Your Honor, what the district court concluded as a matter of law was that it, that notwithstanding Dr. Blake's testimony regarding the source of the blood found on Mr. House's jeans, that that did not eliminate the, eliminate the testimony of Agent Scott, who said that he saw blood on the jeans when he first, or excuse me, let me rephrase that because it's actually a critical matter. He saw what he thought appeared to be bloodstains on the jeans when he first picked them up. What the district court did in that instance was exactly the error that Mr. House has brought to the attention of this Court, which is, in the face of evidence of innocence, the district court, simply because it found some contrary evidence in the record, found that Mr. House had failed to make a deal. On that one point, do you contend that the district court was clearly erroneous? Your Honor. On that one point of the blood, of whether, indeed, his blood was on, or the victim's blood was on the inside of his trousers, on that one point, do you claim that the district court was clearly erroneous? Justice Scalia, we actually make two claims regarding that. 
First, that that was a conclusion of law entitled to well, entitled to de novo review. What's second, your, what's your if, second point? Because I second, Justice Scalia, if indeed it was a finding of fact, yes, that finding of fact was clearly erroneous. On the basis solely of the testimony of of, of this expert. Uh, Your Honor, on the basis of the entirety of the record, which is what this Court instructed the District Court to examine when it conducts a schloop inquiry. Including the contrary testimony that said if it had been the result of a spill, it would not have been splattered all over as it was here. Some of it wouldn't have been on the inside of the trousers. Some of it wouldn't have been mixed with mud. And despite all of that, you, you can say that the District Court's finding, which I consider a finding of fact, was clearly erroneous. Your Honor, including not only that testimony, but the testimony of the same expert who made the statements which the Court decided, who said that she was unable, that she was excluding merely the direct spillage, the pouring of blood onto the jeans, and conceded in her testimony that the transfer stains which she observed, the type of stains which she observed, could in fact have been, that she had no opinion as to the cause of those, only that it was the result of one object wiping against another object. Also in light of the testimony and regarding... I I agree that all of this stuff would, would have made a better case for the defendant here. But once the case has been tried, and both sides have put on all the evidence they have, we have a a much different test, and and that is uh, whether any reasonable juror could have found him guilty. That's a very heavy burden, whether any reasonable jury could have found guilt. I agree it would have been a much closer case, but but the burden you, you, you have before us here is to establish that no reasonable jury could possibly have found him guilty. And And just on the blood thing alone, I I, I find that a a hard burden to bear. Justice Scalia, there are are two things which come into the the Court's analysis. First is the Court is correct. The burden is quite high, and it's, it's high for a reason. It's justifiably high. We don't shrink from that burden, Your Honor. What we say is that, along with that burden, the Court also requires that the entirety of the evidence be reviewed. If the entirety of the evidence is reviewed and the effect of the entirety of the evidence on a properly instructed, reasonable juror, that's the nature of the uh, the determination, what effect will that have? When we look at the facts in this case, when we look at the blood evidence in this case, yes, we don't deny that there is evidence which could support conviction. However, that is not the test in Schlup. Schlup specifically rejected that inquiry. The what test did it rest on? What is, what is the district court's conclusion? The court concludes that the spillage occurred after the FBI crime lab received and tested the evidence. What does that rest on? Your Honor, quite frankly, we can't determine that, it re- that that statement rests on anything. The undisputed evidence in the record consists of a photograph of the blood samples at the time they were received by the defense expert. The box was opened and photograph was taken. The photograph shows clearly that one entire tube of blood is missing and a second tube of blood has leaked within the packaging. But the record also contains the testimony of the TBI agent who transported the blood from the FBI to the defense expert who said he observed 
no blood that leaked other than the other than what was inside the container. It also contains the testimony of the FBI agent who tested the blood at the FBI who said two things. One, I used no mortar, no more than one quarter of a tube of blood, and that no blood spilled while the tube was in the possession of the FBI. It also contained the testimony of an expert who said that if the tube spilled in that way, it would not have created the kind of spatterings that, that were incriminating in this case. Even if there was some spill, it would not have produced the kind of spattering. So, you know, I call that a draw. Your Honor, two, two, things, to, two things to point out there. First is that that eliminates only one possible Hypothesis, and that is a hypothesis that blood was directly spilled onto onto the onto the jeans. I think the example that the expert gave was these are not stains. For example, the pouring of a like coffee uh, pouring coffee onto the lap of your jeans or something like that. These are simply transfers. One bloody object wiped against another. So while she gave a hypothesis of guilt, and again, Your Honor, it comes to the could and would distinction. Yes, it, that could be considered evidence of guilt. What would a re- but however, that's not the inquiry. The inquiry is what would a reasonable juror who heard that on one side, that it didn't spill directly, but on the other side, heard the evidence that we began, that I began to discuss with Justice Breyer, which is the evidence of the TBI agent, the photographic evidence, the evidence of the FBI agent, the evidence that the styrofoam box was opened during transit to the FBI, and that objects were removed from it during transit. I have two questions on the blood, and there's a lot you want to cover here, so I won't take too much of your time. One, uh, is it significant for your case that this was a very small sample? Two, was the evidence about the enzymatic uh, degradation, was, was that available, was the science about that fully available uh, to the defense at the time of trial? Those two questions. Justice Kennedy, in, in terms of the, the size of, of the blood stains, it was, it was significant to the extent that it bears upon um, the probative value of the testimony of Charles Scott when he says, when he said he saw what he thought might be stains. As a simple matter of fact, this, uh, the genes were stained with a number of substances, not just blood, and a number of witnesses, including the pro- trial prosecutor himself, described the blood stains as actually so small that they, they were uh, difficult to detect uh, by the human eye. Uh, the second part of your question, uh, Justice Kennedy, yes, that evidence was available. And our position is that it, that goes actually to the substance of our constitutional and effective assistance of counsel claim. Trial counsel had in his possession, or his experts certainly had in his possession, the photograph that showed an entire tube of blood missing. Therefore, he had evidence that there was something wrong with the blood. Trial counsel was actually concerned about this blood. He filed a pretrial motion to suppress this blood evidence. Here's trial counsel. With evidence that blood's missing, he knows it's a critical issue in the case, and he failed to go out and hire someone like the assistant chief medical examiner for the state of Tennessee who came into federal court and testified as to the, that the source of this blood was, in fact, that empty tube. That, that would be an important point if, in fact, it conclusively established that the blood was not the blood of the victim. But I don't think it does conclusively establish that, and if it doesn't, 
the uh, the less than perfect performance of counsel is 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 no basis for setting aside the conviction. Your Honor, two matters on that. Again, the proof of innocence does not have to be absolute. This Court stated in Schlup that the fact that there is still some evidence of guilt or that there still exists even substantial evidence of guilt does not prevent a defendant from passing through the Schlup gateway. The second matter, and one which I think is important, is that as a matter of Tennessee law, a circumstantial evidence case requires not only that the prosecution prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, but that it eliminate all reasonable hypotheses of innocence. So even if a jury could conclude that the blood came during, uh, that the blood got on the genes during the course of the crime, it would also have to be able, it would also have to uh, be probable that the same jury would also conclude that it was an impossibility for Mr. Blake, Dr. Blake's testimony, to be correct. So, in fact, it's Dr. Blake's testimony which has to be impossible to, to accept in order for a jury to find, uh, a reasonable jury to find this uh, Justice Scalia said blood of the victim. You don't contest that this was the blood of the victim. The question is, at what point did it get transferred to the genes? That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. There's no question about it being someone else's blood. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. Ginsburg. The question has been from the beginning of this case when the blood came to get on Mr. House's genes. Right. And, and the point of controversy is whether a spill of, of, the, <coughs> of, of the blood in the, in the course of transport could have produced this, this kind of, of spattering, including a spattering on the inside of, of the trousers near the button. Uh, it, I, it seems to me unlikely, and, and, and I, I am unable to say that no reasonable jury, juror could not think it unlikely. Justice Scalia, I, I would disagree with, with, with the Court's analysis there. I, I think what, it's, what the issue here is more whether, given the testimony of Dr. Blake, given the corroborating evidence uh, that supports Dr. Blake's testimony, would a reasonable juror have doubts or would any reasonable juror have a — retain a reasonable — excuse me. It's much more than that. Let me rephrase that, Justice Scalia. The question is, given the Tennessee jury instruction, would any reasonable juror have had to have a reasonable — Yes. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Right, and you're saying, yes, any reasonable juror would have had to have a reasonable doubt, irrespective of what the trial judge found. That's correct, Justice Breyer. So the, the, so the trial, we would have to be finding, in this case, if we ruled in your favor, that we think the trial judge is unreasonable. And, your Honor, that's actually uh, not correct either. Schlup specifically says that the function of the district judge in a Schlup hearing is not to make an independent judgment on the evidence in front of him, but to make a probabilistic determination of the effect of the evidence on a reasonable juror. Well, but surely he's supposed to make factual determinations 
we, 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 I, I don't want to make factual determinations on all these questions. That's, that's not our system of law. Those factual determinations are made by the trial judge. And here, I agree with you that we don't have to accept his judgment as to what a reasonable juror would have done. But I do think that we have to accept his factual findings as accurate unless they're clearly erroneous. And here he made the factual finding that that blood was there before the transport. And I, I think I'm bound by that unless you can show that it is clearly erroneous, which I don't think you can. Your Honor, um, first, we, we believe we have, have shown that it's clearly erroneous. Second, even viewing the blood evidence separately, even saying, well, Mr. House has put up some evidence of, some evidence of innocence regarding this blood evidence, but not enough to really sway me uh, regarding that. That evidence itself has to be viewed in light of the entire record. And in light of the entire record, that blood evidence standing alone in its even somewhat compromised state, uh, no reasonable juror would be able to come to the conclusion that Mr. House was guilty because the remaining evidence of his innocence is also very substantial. Are you going to mention any of the other, or are we going to just deal with the blood today? Justice O'Connor, we, we, we would like to move on to, to some of the other evidence because it, it is substantial, and, and we've, set, we've set out a lot of that evidence uh, beginning at page 6 of our reply brief. Could you also cover, because the time is short, if you get through the gateway on your actual innocence contention, what are your constitutional claims that lie behind it? Because I don't think much was said about that in the briefing. What is it that you would you would say if you got through the gate? Justice Ginsburg, as, as I mentioned earlier, we believe that we have numerous instances of ineffective assistance of counsel. First, counsel's failure to, upon knowing of the importance of the blood evidence, which he clearly did because he raised, uh, raised the issue himself, upon knowing of the photograph showing the missing blood, he failed to go forward and basically do what we did in federal court, which was hire an expert to look at the results of the FBI testing and to determine whether there was a viable defense, uh, a viable uh, defense strategy available there, which he did not. Also, if we look at the record in this case, we have a situation where trial counsel also um, pointed toward Hubert Muncie, Jr. as the actual perpetrator of this crime. He actually called the sister of the victim to say uh, that his sister was afraid of Mr. Muncie and that she had plans to leave him. When we look at what was available to trial counsel there, we see five witnesses, many of whom were friends of Mr. Muncie, who presented evidence that showed that on the night of Ms. Muncie's murder, Mr. Muncie and Ms. Muncie had a fight at the CNC Recreation Center, that Ms. Muncie went home, that Mr. Muncie followed her there, that he confessed that when he returned home, he was angry and drunk, that they began to argue again, that he struck her in the head, that she fell, that he checked her lifeless body and found she was dead, that he hid her body in the bushes, 
But, but the, the injuries on the body are simply not uh, consonant with, uh, with that uh, manner of, 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 her, of her death. Uh, uh, the police officer testified not only to a head injury, but to blood coming out of the nose and ears, scratches and bruises on her throat and legs, scratches on her face. That simply is not consonant with one whack on the head. Justice Scalia, there, there, there are two issues there. It, in fact, the, the pathologist's testimony and, and, and the law enforcement officer's testimony is consistent to the extent that the injuries which Mr. Muncie described inflicting were, in fact, inflicted upon the victim. There were those injuries. The point, the fact that there were additional injuries to the victims, uh, uh, to the victim, assumes that somehow Mr. Muncie's independent short confession, because remember, when he started to confess, after he makes his confession, he's rushed out of the home and told that they don't want to hear anything. This isn't a situation like a law enforcement, a confession made to law enforcement, where once obtaining evidence of guilt, law enforcement pursues and tries to get as many of the details out of it. I don't believe that it would be it's significant or it would be significant to any reasonable juror that Mr. Muncie did not describe every single injury that he inflicted on Ms. Muncie that night. Uh, the, you've mentioned, in response to Justice Ginsburg, you didn't mention, and perhaps it was inadvertent. If not, I want to know why not. I thought if you get through the gate, what you're going to say is the state should have given us evidence that they had that showed that Mr. Muncie had sexual relations with his wife the morning of the killing. And therefore, the semen that they found uh, didn't necessarily belong to your client, but rather belonged to him. As it turned out, it did. That's correct, Justice Breyer. So you're going to make that Brady? We, we, we are going to also if make the Brady it. claim. In addition, Your Honor, uh, if indeed that evidence was available to trial counsel, who did talk to Mr. Muncie, who was able to interview Mr. Muncie, uh, and failed to ask Mr. Muncie whether he had had sexual relationships with his wife, even though trial counsel attempted ineffectively a trial to, to show that 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 semen belonged to Mr. Muncie. So it's one of those situations, uh, Justice Breyer, whether it is either Brady for the state's failure to turn it over, or if it was available, it's another instance of ineffective assistance. Also, can I step step back a little bit to get get back to the standard of review because I think it's an unusual one. Uh, you started out by talking about what the first jury knew and didn't know, but we are in no sense reviewing that jury determination. Correct? That is correct. Justice we are Robert. supposed to look at all of the evidence, the new evidence and the old evidence, mm-hmm. and determine simply whether or not it would be unreasonable for any juror to vote to convict on the basis of all of that evidence. Is that right? Your Honor, what Schlup says is that we are to step back and see whether it is more likely than not that no re- that any reasonable juror uh, would vote to convict. No. Reasonable juror would have to have. Would have, to, would have. That's correct, Justice Breyer. So, in other words, no reasonable juror, no, no juror could reasonably vote to convict. In other words, if we look at this evidence and think that, you know, Again, we're not reviewing the prior jury's evidence. If we look at this and say, maybe a jury would come out 10 to 2 in favor of acquittal, if we think that would be reasonable, then you lose, right? Chief Justice Roberts, I... Under my hypothetical, there are two reasonable jurors who vote to convict. Chief Justice Roberts, the danger in that hypothetical is that 
we are approaching an area where the definition of the reasonable juror becomes something subjective. The definition of a reasonable juror is not a subjective inquiry. In fact, it's, a, it's an objective inquiry. So to that extent, I would have to disagree with, with your analysis uh, or, your, or your hypothetical, which is that um, maybe there might be two jurors out there who would listen to this evidence and vote to convict Mr. House. I don't think that's a correct statement. Of well, then Schlupp shouldn't, ex- shouldn't have expressed it that way then. Uh, Schlupp must have, uh, must have made a big mistake when it said no reasonable juror could. It should have expressed it differently. It said a reasonable juror would not, would not have found. But it didn't say that. It said no reasonable juror. Your Honor, I believe the court in, I believe the court in Schlupp took the word reasonable to encompass uh, the point which I have just made. Well, didn't you you, you you have accepted Justice Scalia's formulation, but it, my understanding is that Schlipp did not say no reasonable juror could. Schlipp said no reasonable juror would have. Isn't that correct? And, yeah. and that's correct, Justice But, I mean, it's would, not it, could. It is would. Would would imply a sufficiency of evidence possibility of analyzing it. But the would language excludes uh, a, a sufficiency of evidence. Uh, the, the Wood uh, formulation says, in effect, what would the reasonable juror actually have done? Is, is that your understanding? I mean, is that? That is, Justice Souter. Or more precisely, what would all reasonable jurors have done? What would any reasonable juror, Justice Souter? All Sousa. reasonable jurors. I believe the language is well. any well. If there are no more questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Kissinger. Ms. Smith, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the evidence presented in the District Court fails to raise sufficient doubt about Mr. House's guilt to justify review of his procedurally defaulted claims because reasonable jurors would not ignore the fact that Mr. House's genes were stained with the blood of Carolyn Muncy. That is a fact that has not been undermined by any of the evidence presented in the federal habeas proceeding. The enzymatic degradation theory of Dr. Blake was so thoroughly discredited in the federal evidentiary hearing that it is highly unlikely that any reasonable juror viewing all the evidence would be convinced by it, let alone that everyone would vote to acquit in light of it. In fact, the petitioner's evidence of innocence was disputed in nearly every respect. And how, sorely- how is that? I thought you'd go on to say how that. I, how is it? I, I read that Dr. Blake said this. He said, look, uh, I, there, there are tiny little specks of blood on the gene." And we test them. They were tested. And they show that a certain enzyme deteriorated to degree X. And that's true of the test tube, blood as well. Both deteriorated to degree X. But if you take fresh blood and splatter it, there will be no deterioration. So, conclusion, the blood on the genes came from the test tube. Now, you say that was discredited, but I didn't read anywhere anything that discredited it. What was the discrediting of that? That was specifically discredited by the, te- by the testimony of Agent Bigby. We said. Dr. Blake's specific opinion was that his interpretation of the enzyme marker study, mm-hmm. specifically the GLO-1 enzyme on the genes and on the vial, right. showed INC, yeah. INC, which he took yeah. to mean 
incomplete penetrance. Yeah. Agent Bigby specifically disputed not only the literal interpretation of that, in that it doesn't mean incomplete penetrance. In fact, Agent Bigby did not know what that even meant in the area of serology, but he, he disagreed with the meaning that Dr. Blake ascribed to that to that definition, to which that notation, what? which Dr. Blake concluded was that incomplete. And what did the FBI man say it was? Agent Bigby testified, or Dr. Blake testified, that the INC meant that the enzyme was not present, that it he had said, dropped out. He says out. it meant incomplete. And what, are you, what, did, what did Dr. Bigby say? Dr. Blake said it was not present. It had yeah, dropped sorry. out. Agent I read Dr. Blake, you just said, said that the word INC meant incomplete. And you say Dr. Bigby discredited that by saying, no, it didn't mean agent make something else. What is the something else? Agent Bigby testified that INC means inconclusive, Ah, which means that the enzyme is present, but that he could not subtype it. Now, I have on page 119, which they cite of the transcript, Mr. Prude is talking to Mr. Dr. Blake. Would your opinion change, doctor, if, quote, INC notation meant inconclusive rather than incomplete penetration? Answer, same difference. Question, so your opinion would not change? Answer, that is correct. But the, the, the dispute goes beyond the literal interpretation of the INC. It goes to the meaning ascribed to it. And Agent Bigby disagreed that Dr. Blake, doc, with Dr. Blake's conclusion that the INC indicated that the enzyme had dropped out of the sample. He said it was present, it could not be typed. Agent Bigby also disagreed with Dr. Blake's overarching theory that there was equal deterioration in the vials, in the blood in the vials, in the blood on the pants. In fact, Agent Bigby went through step by step. But it would have been the easiest thing in the world for you if, in fact, you think that this is not true, that enzyme GL706BX, contrary to what Dr. Blake said, had not deteriorated in the blood spot. Do a test. Find out if it's deteriorated or not. Can't, can't that be done? I mean, I, Dr. Blake in this part is reading his own report. His own report says the enzyme deteriorated in the spots on the genes. And I see nothing here that says to the contrary. But if that weren't true, the blood's right there. And if it weren't true that it had deteriorated, I would have expected testimony at the least saying, no, Dr. Blake, you are wrong. Your Honor, the Dr. blood did not deteriorate. The yeah. enzyme did not deteriorate. But there is no such testimony. Instead, you seem to be relying on the difference between the word incomplete and inconclusive, a difference that Dr. Blake says is inconclusive or incomplete. Dr. Blake was not reading his own report. Dr. Blake performed no independent analysis. Dr. Blake was reading Agent Bigby's report. Agent Bigby was explaining to the district court the meaning of the notations that he included in his report. But the, but the dispute goes beyond this so expert. Bigby was explaining what he meant when he wrote INC. That's correct, Your Honor. And it was different than what Dr. Blake said it meant. That's correct, Your Honor. The report at issue was a report prepared pre-trial by Agent Bigby when he did the initial, the initial enzyme analysis. The district court heard all of this, didn't it, all of this evidence? And, and didn't the district court make a factual finding? That's correct, Your Honor. Not only did the district court note. We can call in these witnesses ourselves, I suppose, and hear them all again, but we usually accept the factual findings of the trier of fact. That's correct, Your Honor. And the district court specifically found as a fact that the blood spills. Does that finding rest on the conclusion that Dr. 
uh, Blake was not credible and Agent Bigby was credible? I think that that conclusion implicitly uh, includes a finding that Agent Bigby was was credible and Dr. Blake was not credible. And that Dr. Blake was not credible. There were additional. And who, what was Dr. Blake's background? Dr. Blake's background is, is that he was a forensic pathologist. Employed often by the state? He was often employed by the state. He had a history of, of being employed by the state. At this time, he was not a state agent, Your Honor. He was not, had not worked in any way, shape, or form on this case. He did not perform the autopsy. He did not view the body. He did not perform the enzyme marker uh, study in this case. He simply came in and reviewed uh, results and photographs that had been uh, conducted and taken by, by individuals previously. He had no direct responsibility in this so case. You're, basic, you're basically arguing he was not a credible witness. He was not a credible witness, Your Honor. What, what is the answer to my question? Because I do think it turns on this. A lot does. The trial judge sat there and said this is very important. Dr. Blake is quoting from something called Part 5, which I thought was his report. And then the doc, trial judge says, well, where did you get that idea? Where did you get that idea that the, that the, the enzyme wasn't there in, uh, in the gene's blood? Where did you get it? And he says, I got it from the FBI report, I think. He's not certain, because he's remembering his own conclusion. He isn't quite sure where he got it from. And now it turns out that the INC, one day it said INC, which he thought meant there isn't much enzyme there. And then they say, well, maybe it meant inconclusive. And he says, that wouldn't matter, because I guess I took it to mean that, too, would show there wasn't much enzyme there. Both would come to the same thing. And uh, now... If I'm sitting there and thinking, I'm thinking, well, either there is or there isn't this enzyme in the, in the blood that's right there. Easiest thing in the world to prove. And if somebody's going to dispute it, the state will come back and say, no, no, the enzyme's there. But they didn't. So I read the testimony, and I read the fact that you didn't dispute it with any evidence as saying, yeah, the enzyme's not there. Your Honor, Agent Bigby specifically testified that the enzyme was there. Did where he specifically that? testified on page... 282 right. of the Joint Appendix. Right. He specifically said that doesn't mean it wasn't present. He also pointed out GLO should have been uh, present and said it wasn't. Wait. It doesn't mean it isn't present. It isn't quite the same thing, is it? Dr. Agent Bigby specifically testified that the enzyme was present. It could not be typed to any degree of certainty, so he simply called it inconclusive, but that it was present. If it had not been present, he would have marked it N-A, meaning no activity, which was also included uh, in the report in a separate location. But I think it goes beyond. Could you, uh, focusing on this, what's called a finding, although the district judge himself puts it under conclusions of law, just the court concludes that the spillage occurred after the FBI crime laboratory received and tested the evidence. What is the basis, the specific basis for that conclusion that it occurred after the FBI tested the evidence? The specific basis identified explicitly in the opinion was that Special Agent Scott, when he removed the, the blue jeans from the hamper in Donna Turner's trailer, saw what appeared to be blood stains on the jeans. That blood ultimately ended up testing uh, as, as positive for blood, and in fact, Carolyn Muncy's blood. So, that, so the, the stains were observed when they were removed from the hamper. He also noted that Agent Bigby testified 
when he received the blood at the, the FBI laboratory, there was no evidence of contamination. Agent Bigby testified to the FBI protocols and said that if there had been any evidence of contamination or spillage, the evidence would have been returned without testing. So he looked specifically at that. He also looked and specifically pointed out as significant the testimony of Paulette Sutton, who indicated who was the blood spatter uh, expert. She indicated that some of the blood stains were mixed with mud, and to her that indicated that there had not been some accidental spillage in, in an evidence container, that the mud and the blood would have were, were combined to the extent that they would have had to get on the genes at or near the same time. So those, yes, but those then things. But there was also the evidence that's not disputed that it was a dry day and that there was no mud at all at the scene of the crime. Your Honor, I, I'm not sure that the evidence is undisputed that it was a dry day. If you look at the autopsy report that's in, that's in evidence uh, in, in the trial record, uh, it specifically says that it was drizzling that day, that the, that the temperature was between 80 and 90 degrees, and it was drizzling. Mr. House showed up with blood all over his jeans. He got the blood somewhere. I, I, don't, not think, it's an, I don't think it's entirely clear that, that the, the conditions were dry. His, his jeans were clearly muddy that when he showed up. That, that it was agreed that, there were, that the site... Uh, when the body was found, that that was dry, that that was dry ground. I thought there was no dispute about that. I'm not sure that that it's clear where Mr. House got the mud on his jeans. He was he traveled some distance from the site of the body and, and to his home. He could have uh, gotten muddy and rude. I, I I can't explain how he got the blood on his jeans. I know he showed up with muddy jeans. He got mud on his jeans at some point, and those and the mud and the blood were. Were, were intermingled. I'm not sure that they got on there at the same time. I'm also not sure that the mud that Paulette Sutton saw was, was, was created by a combination of mud and water. It could have been perspiration. It could have been any other type of, of fluid. It could have been blood uh, creating the mud. So it's, that is it's very ambiguous, and, and I think that the fact, that the significance of the testimony is that it, it did not indicate an accidental spillage after the fact of the blood onto the genes, and I think that was that was the point that the district court took from that. He wasn't trying to, to recreate the exact sequence of events in the crime. He was simply trying to pinpoint at what point the blood spilled, because there's no question the blood spilled. The, the, the photograph shows it spilled. The photograph shows that the, that the tops had come off. Um, but, but the photograph also but, but isn't shows — isn't there also evidence that the spillage in the styrofoam containers seemed to be inadequate to account for all of the blood that was missing from the bile? I think there was testimony that, that the appearance of it seemed to be inadequate. There was no specific quantification of the blood, and, and no, one in t- no one attempted to do that. It's not clear whether some of the blood leaked out of the container and maybe wasn't contained within it. Uh, there, were, there were pieces of gauze that had blood soaked in it. There was also a dispute well, about the size of the vials. Well, this whole question of quantity relates to chain of custody. Your Honor, I think what's important is the point of the spillage. If, if, the, if the blood spilled after it left the FBI lab, and that was a specific finding made by the district court, and that finding is clearly supported by the record, um, what happened to the blood, where it spilled after the fact, and we know that it did spill, really is, is beside the point. Because uh, another blood question, because uh, you make a point of the, the uh, sheriff having said, well, I, I saw blood on the jeans. So I looked at the pictures, and the pictures seem uh, to have little tiny bits of blood while a lot of mud. So uh, I came to the conclusion that no reasonable person could think that that testimony really shows that, the, that, that there, was, there was blood from the 
from the uh, victim on his genes. Now, am I right about that? You're going to think I'm wrong, and I want to hear why. Well, I do think you're wrong, Your Honor, because I, I think that if you look in the record, there are at least four witnesses who indicated that they saw the blood. One was Special Agent How Scott. How could you have? It's so tiny. Well, Your Honor, the, the photographs that you have are photographs that are taken after portions of the genes have been cut out and sent for testing. You're not seeing everything that, that the agent saw. Special Agent Scott saw what he believed to be blood. He couldn't. He didn't know it was blood, but, it, but he suspected it was blood. He identified in the, in the habeas proceeding the areas that he believed it to be blood, and it turned out to be blood. Jerry Morrissey... Uh, who was the defense serologist, and, and incidentally, just to, uh, that reminds me of, of, of a comment made by my colleague in his argument uh, about defense counsel's uh, deficiency in not, in not hiring a serological expert. He had a serological expert. Jerry Morrissey testified, was a serologist, and testified that he received the genes after the FBI tested it. He was unable to uh, duplicate the results, but as part of his testimony, he said that he observed some blood stains, what he thought to be blood stains, around the FBI cuttings, and he attempted to do additional testing on those blood stains. So he saw the stains. Um, Agent Bigby testified that he observed the stains. He didn't say that some were big or some were small. He said that he observed them. As well, uh, Paulette Sutton in the federal habeas proceedings said that she saw the stains. She said she couldn't tell upon observation that it was blood, but it was dark, and she suspected it was blood. It was suspicious. So we have at least four witnesses who say they saw this blood. This wasn't microscopic. This was something that, that it witnesses, and incidentally, uh, Paulette Sutton's observation was borne out because she did presumptive testing. So the things that, the spots that she suspected were blood, in fact, turned out to be blood. Ms. Smith, could, could you um, go on to some of the other elements that are contested here? In, in particular, I'm interested uh, uh, in, in uh, Mr. Muncie's uh, uh, confession. What, what, do you, what do you say about that? Your Honor, I, I think of all the evidence presented below, I think that the confession evidence is, is perhaps the least reliable in terms of, of the schlup analysis. What did the jury hear about Muncie's confession? The jury was never informed of Muncie's confession because the, the fact of Muncie's confession didn't come up until 13, 14 years after the trial had already been concluded. And, and that's one of the things that the district court, in, in examining their testimony, uh, found what was significant in his... But wasn't the district court incorrect in that? Because, uh, as I understand it, there was evidence from one of the two witnesses who put in the confession evidence that she had gone to the sheriff's department to, to tell them about the confession and had simply gotten a runaround and finally left. So, as I understand it, the, the record would not support the finding that, that the, the sources of evidence simply kept silent for over a decade. Well, that's what the witness testified to, Your Honor. Well, is there Literally. any reason not to, did the Did the district court uh, explain that it was rejecting that element of the witness's testimony? The district court did not specifically address that element of the witness's testimony. The court found that it specifically that it was not impressed with the testimony of a witness who waits. And, and this court has said on many occasions. I know, but it, without getting to that point, it it sounds as though the district court simply made a mistake, just forgot, I suppose, uh, the evidence that the witness didn't wait at all. Your Honor, regardless of whether the witness waited or not, the court examined the credibility of the testimony and found that it wasn't credible. Well, and but one of the reasons for the finding of, of incredibility was the decade or more of silence. That was one of the reasons, but the primary reason was that the, te that the confession itself was inconsistent with the other evidence, and that was what the court specifically pointed to in his opinion. Well, the referent, tell me, help me out here, it is, as has been explored earlier, 
the confession referred to, to some of the injuries on the body, but not to all of them. Were there, were there other disparities between the confession and, and the evidence and, and other evidence? There were several disparities, Your Honor. The confession indicates that there was uh, apparently an extensive argument at home. The testimony of the daughter, both at trial and in the habeas corpus proceeding, was that there was no such argument. She heard no argument. And the court, incidentally, found her testimony to be very credible. He observed her demeanor and, and found her testimony to be credible. So that's inconsistent. Well, as far as that's concerned, she did testify that there was a car out there. That's correct. And the rest of the story uh, doesn't, doesn't put the defendant's house at the time of the crime in a car. He's walking. Your Honor, the, the, the testimony at trial was ambiguous about the, about the car. The witness identified two separate incidents. She heard a car and she heard someone inquire as to Mr. Muncie's whereabouts. And then she also heard an individual come and tell her, her mother that her father had been in a wreck down by the creek and heard her mother leave sobbing. Those are two distinct incidences, and, and Laura Muncie testified that she did not know whether she had gone back to sleep. She never could identify or, or define the specific length of time between the two, but logically, those are two separate incidences. It doesn't make sense for someone to come and ask where Mr. Muncie is and then to say, well, he's down by the creek. He just had a wreck. So it's, it seems that just logically those are two separate incidences, and there's nothing in the, in the testimony to indicate that but they, they were the same. they happened at the same time, didn't they? No, you're right. The child testified to what she heard. And I thought she heard a car and someone in a low voice, and then her mother left with that someone. No, Your Honor. She heard a car and someone inquire as to the whereabouts of her father, and she heard her mother answer. And then there was a period of time where she said she wasn't sure whether she went back to sleep or not. And then she heard a person with a low voice come in and inform her mother that she that, that her father Hubert Muncie Jr. had been in a wreck down by the creek. She heard her mother sob and leave with the individual who had relayed that information. Those are two distinct incidences. But beyond that, uh, the, the court incidentally found her testimony to be very credible. Found that her testimony did not support this uh, this theory of some sort of confrontation in the house. In addition, the court also heard the live testimony of Hubert Muncie Jr. himself, explaining his whereabouts, explaining and, and actually denying ever having made the statement. Uh, and, and the court balanced it. And as well, Dennis Wallace, who testified at the evidentiary hearing, he investigated a missing persons report. He was in the home. He saw no evidence of any sort of struggle in the home. So all of these things uh, balanced against this, this confession, which has absolutely no uh, corroborative support in the record. Um, the court found that the testimony simply uh, wasn't well, credible. Well, it did have corroboration. It wasn't there a, 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 a wound on the victim that was consistent with the, with the confession? There was a, a wound to the victim's left forehead. Was that not consistent with the confession? The confession was that Mr. Muncie hit her and she you fell and hit her yes head. Yes or no? Was it, was it consistent with the confession? It, it could be consistent with the confession. It was, it was very sketchy. There, there was a dispute between the two pathologists in the habeas as to whether or not that, that wound could have been sustained um, by, by falling and hitting her head on a table and actually could have created the, the damage in the, in the brain. So, so overall, uh, if, looking at this, uh, and that's why I think the question about the weight to give to the fact-finding is important. Uh, you think you have a theory under which he could have done it, and it's certainly possible, in my opinion. Uh, but also you think, uh, my goodness, uh, if he did it, going in this luring of the woman to the creek 
you know, there's nothing else in the record that suggests he would plot in that way to do this, nothing. The husband's away at the time from the dance. He could have done it. They are fighting. They could have done it. And if the luring theory correct, the motive was sexual. But the sexual physical evidence is from the husband, not from him. So the jury is brought into this on a theory that there is a sexual attack and the one by the defendant, and the one thing that seems disproved pretty much is that. And now we have two experts, Dr. Blake and Dr. Bigsby. And reading that page, which I hadn't read thoroughly until you pointed it out, I'd say they might disagree. They might disagree. And it's just not conclusive. So if you're sitting there, do you have to have a reasonable doubt when there's such strong evidence for both people? And, and how, the part that's bothering me, I, I see what that district judge said on that one point, which he may have thought was peripheral, but turns out to be quite important about when the blood spilled. But you look at the underlying thing, and I think, well, maybe you're right, but maybe you're not right. And so how, how, do, I, how, do, I, how do I do this? What's the, uh, what's the weighing? I sit there and think, my goodness, I don't know who committed this crime, if I'd been on that jury. And uh, could... could uh, uh, a, a person sitting there reasonably come to a conclusion, my goodness, I know. Well, Your Honor, I think to answer your question is, if you are at that mental state where you are saying, maybe this evidence is right, maybe that's, that evidence is right, maybe I can go one way or another, then I think the respondent prevails in this case. Well, but that, that simply says, if, uh, it seems to me you're simply saying there would be sufficient evidence to go the one way rather than the other. And, and, and you may well be right about that, but that certainly is not the reasonable doubt standard. I think it goes beyond just having sufficient evidence to convict, Your Honor. I think you also look at these credibility determinations and you look at the probabilistic uh, result of a reasonable juror. Justice Breyer has not heard these witnesses and hasn't had the opportunity to know whether, uh, whether for example, these, uh, uh, this testimony about the confession was credible or not. That's correct, Your Honor. Here at the trial did have that opportunity. The district court heard both of the both of the sisters regarding the confession. The district court heard Hubert Muncie Jr. regarding the alleged confession. But, but may, may I interrupt you? What, what about I want to just follow up on something that Justice Breyer alluded to, and that is the significance of the DNA evidence. And I have tended to, to think that a reasonable juror would look at it this way. But if I'm wrong, I, I, I want you to comment on it. One of the, uh, I, I assume to begin with, that any reasonable juror would have found this evidence, uh, the evidence of the semen stains, uh, extremely significant. Uh, because not only did the state argue rape as a, as a motive, possible motive, but there was a specific finding of an aggravated circumstance that the murder occurred in the course of kidnapping and rape. I don't know of any evidence that would suggest uh, an, an independent kidnapping crime without the rape element under, you know, the circumstances of, of this crime. So I'm as, I, I assume that the reasonable juror, having come to the conclusion that that aggravating circumstance was true, found that a rape was being committed. If that juror had heard the DNA evidence, that juror would have said, the only positive evidence that a rape was committed here uh, would be evidence that pointed to the husband, not, in fact, uh, to, uh, to the defendant's house. And if, if a juror had heard that evidence, 
it seems to me it is highly unlikely that any reasonable juror would have concluded that that aggravating circumstance was found, and I suppose that would play a a significant role in, in the ultimate conclusion. Now, you have argued that the fact that the DNA evidence shows that it was the husband's fluids, not House's, doesn't conclusively prove that House didn't rape her, and of course you're right. But my understanding is that there is no evidence from which one would reasonably infer that House did this. Now, what is, what is your comment on that my comment on, Sorry. My comment on the DNA evidence is that the DNA evidence did nothing more than confirm what the jury was al- already knew was very likely, which was that the donor of the semen was the husband. The jury at trial was informed that the husband, and it went through several pages. In the joint appendix, it goes all the way from page 56 to 66, where we're exploring that the semen could have been deposited by the husband or by Mr. House. But there was a finding that it was in the course of a rape. That was, part, was, that, was, that was one of the, was it one of three aggravating circumstances? It was one of three, and, and that it was. found at the guilt phase or the trial phase, the it aggravating was, it was that It was an aggravating circumstance of sentencing that, that the murder was perpetrated in the, in the attempt, uh, in, in the, the perpetration or attempt to perpetrate kidnapping or rape or attempted well, then, rape. At, at, a, at a minimum, it seems to me the sentencing phase is, is, is in question by that, but also seems to me if I were a juror and was faced with these conflicting things, I would look for motive. Your Honor, the motive is, is well supported by the circumstances. And, and in fact, if you look at the there prosecutor's argument. Rape besides, besides the semen, the semen wasn't the only evidence of rape, was it? No, sir, it wasn't. There the, were scratches on the thighs? There was. But the, the semen was used to, con, uh, to, to connect it to the, to the defendant. And we now know that that's wrong. The prosecutor argued at trial on the motive question. Why else would someone lure a woman out of her home with a lie in the middle of the night in her night clothes and take her out into the woods who put if in not the to have some sort of, of the, Who put in the semen evidence? The state put in the semen evidence, Your Honor. And they they did that to prove that she had sex with her husband? Is that the reason? Uh, the state put in the semen evidence because it was, it was not inconsistent with Mr. House and that there was other evidence in the record that was not all of the, all of this, this physical evidence was consistent with Mr. House, just as the semen was. Can I get back to this, the, the, the standard of review question, because it goes directly to this point. I, even if you think that the argument based on the semen is not harmless error, in other words, that the prior jury may well have convicted based on that, we're not reviewing that jury's determination, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. You're looking at how how a reasonable juror would view the case if it knew. So we should be looking at the case with the semen evidence showing what we know it to show, regardless of whether we think the prior jury was misled by the admission of that evidence. That's absolutely correct, Your Honor. If, if the jury, if, if a reasonable jury knew that the semen belonged to Mr. House, belonged to Mr. Muncie and not Mr. House, the result would be exactly the same because Carolyn Muncie's blood was all over Mr. House's pants. That is an indisputable fact. And all what about of this at the sentencing stage, Justice Kennedy brought it up. The, the prosecutor didn't emphasize unduly the uh, semen at the, at the guilt stage, but Boyd made a big deal out of it at the sentencing stage. Your Honor, I disagree that they, that they made a big deal. They made a big deal of the kidnapping at the sentencing phase. That was, that was the significance. The, what the prosecutor was did in the, in the joint appendix. I thought it was more than kidnapping. Your Honor, it, the, the sentencing phase argument is not contained in, in the joint appendix. Um, 
there, the closing argument from the guilt phase is contained in, in the joint appendix, but certainly in the, in the transcript uh, before the court. What the, what the prosecutor focused on at sentencing was, was the kidnapping and also was the malice and, and I'm sorry, the, the, specifically the kidnapping. And nothing about the semen the, at, the, at the sentencing stage? At the sentencing phase, the prosecutor said that the evidence would have been consistent with sexual molestation, I think was the word that he used. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Kissinger, you have four minutes remaining. Very quickly, Dr. Blake's testimony was not, in fact, discredited. Um, counsel for respondent um, says that um, put, places great significance on on Dr. Blake's interpretation of the initials INC as standing for incomplete penetration, and that correctly that should have been construed as inconclusive. Uh, counsel fails to acknowledge that record. Uh, record four of the district court, volume six, page 906. Agent Bigby himself uses the term INC to mean are incompl- incomplete, just as Dr. Blake did. So in addition to Dr. Blake saying, yes, I meant the same thing as Justice Breyer observed, Justice Bigby himself uses the term INC to mean in Page 282 of the joint appendix, he says, uh, Inconclusive is what the ink stands for. Dr. Blake testified it is incomplete penetration, which I haven't the foggiest idea what that means. And that's correct, Your Honor. In trial, he used, he said that INC stands for incomplete, and then Agent Bigby at trial proceeded to use incomplete and inconclusive interchangeably, just as Dr. Blake did. In addition, uh, when concerning Dr. Blake's testimony, we have to remember that we still have the missing tube of blood, and the blood on the genes is more consistent with blood coming from the degraded blood sample than it is from blood um, which uh, came uh, got on the genes during the time of the offense. The other thing, which I think is an important matter to to keep in keep in mind regarding Dr. Uh, Blake's testimony, Dr. Bigby, is that Dr. Blake and Agent Bigby both agree in the basic science that blood enzymes deteriorate according to the various environmental factors and that as they deteriorate, they become less detectable. In terms of the, the implicit credibility findings which Respondent relies upon, the District Court, during its opinion, demonstrated that it, know, it knew how to make credibility findings. In fact, it made two specific credibility findings in this case when it found Mr. House's testimony to be incredible and the testimony of Laura Muncy to be credible. As far as this, the suggestion that, yes, there was, the crime scene was wet, that, that, that there was water at, or there was a possibility of mud at the crime scene, not only is this contradicted by the absence of the mud, of mud on the victim's clothing, but also the drizzling, which counsel described, occurred on the day following the murder, not before it happened, not at the time the murder was occurring, uh, but on the day following the murder. So, in fact, there was the murder scene was dry, uh, just as uh, uh, petitioner has informed the court. As far as the daughter not hearing any sign of a struggle, the daughter's testimony was that she did not hear any sign of a struggle when she got up immediately after her mother left the home. The testimony at the evidentiary hearing, unrebutted and unimpeached, was that at that point in time when she was hearing nothing, 
Her mother was, in fact, at the CNC Recreation Center involved in a fight with Hubert Muncy, Jr. In fact, that testimony goes to Mr. House's innocence, because at the time she hears nothing, she hears no sign of a struggle, is the very time that the state of Tennessee contended that Mr. House was out murdering Carolyn Muncy, and yet the daughter who was outside of the home within 50 yards of where this murder occurred heard absolutely nothing. Uh, Justice Scalia asked, was there, in fact, other evidence of of, uh, rape? Wasn't there, in fact, bruises found on her thighs? On cross-examination, the pathologist testified, admitted on cross-examination, that the scratches on Ms. Muncy's thighs were more likely attributable to her being dragged through the brush and her body being hidden, uh, which, incidentally, is an act which Mr. Muncy confessed to doing. In addition... As I stated before, the evidence has to be viewed in light of the entirety of the evidence of the record. It isn't just the blood evidence. It isn't just the semen evidence. It isn't even just the confession. It's also the fact that the same witness who puts Mr. Muncy, or who puts Mr. House even leaving the Donna Turner home on the night of the murder, puts Mr. House leaving the home at a time. Thank you, Thank you, counsel. Case is submitted.